Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And as you probably also know, that book is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen named Robert Kent, I've written some stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, Altogether Now a Zombie Story, uh, and my five-volume serial horror novel, The Book of David, which is written in the style of Stephen King. Uh, if you're curious about that one, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, the first installment, is uh, available as a paperback, or the ebook is also free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, and if you check the back catalog, you can listen to me read that one to you. Um, I'd like to ask you for a favor, esteemed audience, if you have just a moment. Uh, if you haven't done so already, please uh, make sure you're subscribed to the show on whatever platform you're listening to. And maybe write a review. That really helps out a lot. You can do it while you're listening. Uh, two words is fine. Just good show. Uh, if you really want to go over the top and add an exclamation point, that would be appreciated. Uh, but, you know. That's up to you if you want to do just the period. You're not that enthusiastic, I understand. But uh, if you would write a review, that would be tremendous. If you haven't already, you might seek out the show on YouTube. Just do a search for Middle Grade Ninja. It'll come right up. Uh, because every episode is available on YouTube as well as shorter clips of the episodes. If you haven't subscribed on YouTube, please do. Again, it's free. You could do all of this while you're listening to me talk. Uh, take two moments and it helps the show. It uh, helps... Uh, the show rank a little bit higher, which gets a little bit more attention for the authors and publishing professionals that come on. So I'm sure they would appreciate it, and I know I would. Uh, you may or may not hear, my son is waking up and uh, squawking there in the background, so I'm going to have to go get him. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I am. I had the pleasure of chatting with Haley Chewins. Uh, and we talk about all kinds of great stuff. We talk about our mutual love for uh, the singer Tori Amos. Uh, we talk about working with her literary agent, Patricia Nelson. We talk about her brand new novel, The Sisters of Stray Garden Place. Uh, she's got tips for perfecting your prose. She's also a writing coach, so she's got tips for making writing a priority. All kinds of great stuff. And the show starts now. Haley Chewins, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for uh, being here. I should note for esteemed audience who, who watches on YouTube and all of esteemed audience, even if they're not watching on YouTube, should be subscribed on YouTube. Come on, man. This is a free show. Help me out. Um, <laughs> but uh, we are talking with a time difference. So I'm talking to you in Johannesburg. I, of course, am in the fine Hoosier state of Indiana. Uh, and um, uh, so because of that time difference, I'm in my wife's office. So those of you watching on YouTube, the background's a bit different than normal. And I'm also in a very squeaky desk chair. So I'm going to apologize <laughs> at the top of the interview for the squeaking that you may or may not uh, be enjoying throughout. <laughs> well, enough uh, preamble. I'm uh, very excited to talk to you, Haley. The uh, best place probably to get started is I, I never summarize other people's biographies or other people's books because I make a, a mess of both. Um, so to avoid that risk, I'm just going to ask you to begin by giving a uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background. Sure. So my name is Haley Chewins. I'm an author. I write uh, middle grade fantasy books that are kind of on the upper end of middle grade and the darker end of middle grade. And um, I also am a writing coach. 
I help writers to write more intuitively and to kind of trust their intuition in their writing and to move past any blocks that they might have. And I also just launched uh, my first online writing course, which is called 100 Ideas in 10 Days. And um, yeah, it's basically a course that will help you to generate and develop ideas um, through 10 really fun exercises. And it's all about play and like getting to know yourself as a writer and getting in touch with your own voice. And yeah, that's what I do. That's just a lot to, lots to break down and, and unpack. Uh, <laughs> we were talking just before we got started about what motivates us to write. And I think we both agreed it's, it's not money. Um, and I, I told you to hold that thought because I don't want to I don't want to waste something this good off air. My God, let's share this with esteemed audience. So what is it that, that motivates <laughs> you to write? Oh, well, I mean, language chiefly um, and story. So I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by language and just fascinated by words and their meanings and also their sound and their musicality. Um, so. I love just playing with language and when I discovered that I could kind of play with language and also play with character and worlds um, that I could invent from scratch and plot um, and like plot twists and secrets that's just the the most fun thing that I could ever do with my time so that's kind of yeah that's what drives me it's just the the joy of creating your your fun worlds yeah, exactly. The joy of language, the joy of story, the joy of discovering a story kind of like it's almost sometimes like watching a story develop in your mind or just seeing it become a story, um, spending time with it, spending time with the characters, uh, figuring things out. Because um, writing a novel can sometimes feel like you're solving one problem after another, but it's like really fun problems that you get to solve. Um, and yeah, I just really enjoy invention and play and especially wordplay and, and play with like the sound of the sound and the meaning of language. Well, that sounds like nothing but positives to me. So what's the, <laughs> uh, since I know that can't possibly be so, we don't live in that world. What's the downside of writing? What, uh, what's your least favorite thing? Um, what is my least favorite thing? It's really hard actually because there aren't many, um, like I was talking to someone the other day and she, I was telling her how long it takes to write a book and how many stages there are to drafting and revising and editing and she said to me, how do you stick in there for so long? Like, how do you do it? And my honest answer is like, because I enjoy every aspect of that process, I love reading the same sentence like 200 times to get the, the cadence right and I love figuring out plot problems. Um, I love brainstorming. I love drafting. Um, and I draft very intuitively. So I love it when I kind of am having, um, I'm like kind of in the flow and then something happens in a scene that I didn't expect. Like I imagine that the characters are going to have a conversation about one thing and then one of them says something I, I didn't expect them to say or someone like walks through the door. Um, I didn't expect to, to walk through the door. And that's like so, so fun to me. I love that. Um, I guess what I would say is like the thing that maybe is my worst thing is if I'm having a bad writing day in the sense that I can't get into that flow or I just feel kind of um, maybe I have like overwhelming self-doubt or I get bogged down in, you know, not being able to kind of have the confidence and the feeling that I can hold a whole story in my head at one time and that all the little pieces are going to work together at the end. Um, it takes a lot of trust um, over, you know, a period of maybe a year or two years or three years to kind of trust like 
one day I will figure this out because I'm also not a, an outlining kind of a person. Um, I try because I, I, I imagine that outlining is, well, I guess maybe my fantasy is that if I were an, a writer who outlined, that writing would be easier. So I've tried to outline, but I always have to go back, like I'll do an outline and then I start drafting and something happens in the actual act of writing, in the prose that um, that I didn't plan in my outline that changes everything. Um, and so I forgot my point, but yeah, I think I think that the hardest thing is just when you're having a bad day and you, and you don't actually have the feeling that it's going well and you, you maybe, and sometimes I, I doubt that I can get something right or that I can actually figure something out and that can be quite hard. That makes a whole lot of sense to me and certainly very identifiable, uh, I would imagine for everyone listening. I, I don't think there's a writer out there that never has to deal with self-doubt, but uh, if if you are out there, Good for you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> this is your life. <laughs> no hate for me. You go. You'll be happy. That's fantastic. Um, oh, I wanted to follow. I wanted to ask uh, a little bit about uh, writing intuitively because some people could do it really well. Uh, I'm not one of them, although I I aspire to be one. Um, how? I mean, are we talking? You don't have any kind of outline. Do you at least have some idea of where the ending is? Some kind of goal that you're getting to? Um, I never know endings. I, I can't, I wish I knew the ending. I, I can't possibly figure out an ending when I start a book. I just can't. But I do have a couple of things. Um, um, I have usually the character, the situation that they're in right in the beginning of the story, what kind of world they're in, not in any, not in granular detail, but in a broad sense. And I kind of usually have a sense of the catalyst moment. You know, the thing that really changes everything and kind of launches the character into the second act of the book. Um, I do like thinking about structure in broad strokes. So I like thinking about, you know, the first act, the second act, the third act. Um, and I think I think in order to write intuitively, you do need to have a sense of um, how stories work broadly. Um, because if you don't have that, you can go off on all sorts of tangents. And it's just it's not very fun for a reader to to read a story that doesn't have some kind of structure. Um, but having said that, I also don't hold myself to any structure in the beginning. I, I, I might have an idea of what's happening in the beginning and what this catalyst moment is going to be. But if it changes in the writing, I, I allow for that. I, I actually allow for anything to happen in the writing. I kind of write as though I'm dreaming. So if the characters are um, at one point, I don't know, if I find that the characters are suddenly underwater, I'll just go with it, like even if they, they weren't underwater before. Um, and obviously at, through revisions, I have to find, if I want to keep the underwater stuff, I need to figure out why these characters are underwater, like I need to have a reason for it. But, but in the first, second, third draft, when I'm still trying to figure out the characters, what motivates them, what kind of world this is, and what kind of story I'm telling, I just allow for everything. I, 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 I don't kind of close off any possibility. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah. if you're, if they are suddenly underwater, um, now of course you're, you're, you, you tend to write magical realism. Uh, so I, I can imagine they just magic themselves and they're fine underwater. Um, but if that <laughs> weren't the case and they needed to get, you know, breathing apparatus, uh, scuba, uh, scuba gear, all that stuff, would you then stop to do research at any point or would you just keep going and do your research later? When is your research going to come in? So it's kind of dotted throughout, um, but like you said, because I write fantasy, I don't write anything that, um, 
I don't write like historical books that that have to be very historically accurate or books that involve a lot of um, like scientific research or anything like that. So I I'm always researching in a sense that I'm always gathering kind of like a magpie. I'm always gathering things that are interesting to me um, and they sometimes end up in a book you know, kind of by just by osmosis or just not necessarily by me choosing for them to be there. Um, but yeah, so if the characters had to be underwater and they were having a conversation, I would definitely pause and kind of ask myself, why are they underwater? I don't, you know, what's going on here? But I would let myself write the scene. And then I usually let myself go all the way to the end of the draft. And then when I'm reading over, if that underwater scene is still there and if, I, if, it, if it pops up a few more times, I might ask myself, okay, why are the characters underwater? What's going on here? Like, what, do, does, is the whole world underwater? Or is it um, just one particular house that's underwater? Or is there, like, one, is there, like, a character that needs to be some kind of aquatic creature? Or, I don't know, it's, it's more like a question of, sometimes when I'm drafting, I feel like I'm leaving, like, a, a trail of breadcrumbs for myself. And so then when I'm revising, like, after I do a first draft, I'll go and read it. And... I'm kind of looking for that trail of breadcrumbs to figure out what the story is about and who these characters are and what this world is. So I might write a whole draft um, and there's just one underwater scene and maybe I decide I don't actually want this to be in this book and I'll take it out. But if the underwater thing keeps coming back, then I might be like, oh, well, maybe this book is supposed to be set underwater or maybe one of the characters lives underwater or maybe, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's just me kind of figuring out my own brain. Yeah. But that's, I mean, this is this is my own personal uh, feelings coming in about how I work for, because I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a pantser, not 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 firm 100%, but that it almost gives me heart palpitations to think, oh my God, you're <laughs> going to rewrite the whole book uh, so that it's all underwater. What a tremendous amount of work. How many, how many drafts are you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not. It's not the most efficient way of writing. It really isn't. Um, and I've tried. Well, to that it, it is working out very well for you, as we're <laughs> going to talk about. We're we're on book number two. But I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah. So it, it's not the most efficient way, and so I've tried to be more efficient, and I've tried to do you know um, detailed outlines and synopses and things like that. Um, but I always find if I do a really detailed outline, firstly there's the issue of, I don't actually know what the story is, so how can I write an outline of something that I don't know? And I know it sounds weird, but I, I don't I don't get ideas when I'm outlining. I get ideas when I'm actually in the writing, like in the flow of it, and I'm in the language. Um, very often something will happen in the language, like I'll just like smush two words together, and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, Wonder Root Tree, that's a thing in this world, cool. And then later I have to figure out, oh, what is a Wonder Root Tree? Why is it called that? What does it look like? And all of that. But it comes from the word, like, out into the world, as opposed to me thinking, oh, I want a tree that floats, so I'm going to call it a Wonder Root Tree. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know. It's not... It's just the way that my brain comes up with ideas, um, and and um, it's also the most fun way for me to write. So that's why I do it that way. But I don't I don't necessarily recommend, you know, writing <laughs> like if I could not write, um, you know, two hundred thousand words in order to find the forty thousand words that I actually need. That would be better. But at the same time, it's it's the way that my brain works. <laughs> It's, uh, I, I always uh, try and catch myself anytime I've, I've got a, a personal 
uh, moment of, oh, oh my God, that would not, not work well for me. But I keep, I always say that the moment I do this show long enough that I have two authors tell me, we always do this and we are successful every time. I'm going to stop the show and I'm just going to do that. And it has yet to happen because everybody works <laughs> a, a little bit differently. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So how many, how many revisions are you going to, on a typical story, how many times are you taking 200,000 words down to 40? Um, well, I don't write drafts that are 200,000 words. I'm all meant 200,000 words in, in total, um, like over. But yeah, I might write, I mean, to be honest, I kind of lose track of how many drafts I write because I'm also quite disorganized. I'm not, I'm not the most organized person. Um, so I just kind of throw myself into writing and I write until I figured something out and then sometimes I'll be kind of halfway in and I know that it's kind of wrong and I have to go back to the beginning and sometimes I get all the way to the end um, and there's some things I want to keep and other things I want to throw out so yeah it's anywhere from like five to 20 drafts of one story to figure out what the story actually is I don't think I've done more than 20. Okay yeah that's about where I'm at usually somewhere 20 to 30 and I'm you know and I've got a nice outline too. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I don't think anybody avoids the pain of revision. <laughs> well, the pain and the joy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I once listened to this interview with Kelly Barnhill. I think it's the one on um, 88 Cups of Tea. And she talks about doing 45 drafts of The Girl Who Drank the Moon. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, 45 drafts is, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of drafts, I would say. So yeah, if, if it works for Kelly Barnhill, then, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Taste close. That's how we're all going to have to do it. <laughs> Something that uh, strikes me a little bit curious. Not maybe it's not that much of a stretch, but I here we're we're, we're talking. Esteemed audience is hearing uh, how passionate you are about writing, how you enjoy almost every uh, part of the process. Um, but you uh, had said on your bio that uh, from at what age two you saw Pavarotti singing on TV and wanted to passionately be a singer until you got to university and, and switched. So when did that switch occur and why and when did you know you, books were the thing, not, not the singing? Or are you doing both? Um, yeah, so it was always. So writing was one of those. I think this, this is something that happens often with writers, that writing is such a kind of natural part of your life that you almost don't think it's a thing. Like you, you just think it's like breathing or just, it's just not ordinary to just write all the time. And when of course it isn't ordinary for everyone. Um, but yeah, I, I always, I learned to read when I was four and I always loved reading and writing. I always had a journal and I was always writing songs and poems and, you know, journaling about things that happened in my day. Um, and I tried to write stories when I was younger but I always get kind of anxious when I didn't know what was going to happen next. So I would like have the beginning part of a story and then I would just stop because I didn't know how to continue, like how to write a long story that had a, a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, so writing was always part of my life, but I also always, like you said, I always wanted to be a singer my whole childhood and it changed. It was first like an opera singer. And then it was like, I wanted to be like a singer songwriter um, um, or like a, a, a pop singer. But, but I, I love singing and I wrote music constantly. Um, so, yeah, so what happened was I went to university to study music and just had a complete identity crisis because I, I did not fit in at music school at university. Um, I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if I was more like of a kind of songwriter more than like a performer. Um, I do also have... Um, 
stage fright. I don't know if I would call it stage fright, but I get very anxious singing in front of people. It's not, I don't feel like alive and electric from it. I feel like just awful um, when I'm standing in front of people um, about to sing. Um, so even though I still love singing, um, I, 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 I'm much more comfortable kind of sitting in my, in my office and writing songs and kind of recording myself on my computer and like making like vocal harmonies and things like that um, without actually doing like performances or shows or anything like that. Um, yeah, so I, I was at university doing music. Um, I didn't do very well. I, I, didn't, I had like con constant anxiety about crits and um, just having to do like all the theory and, but I really loved doing like the essays and I also had to, I had to take a language and I took Italian and I fell in love with that. So what I ended up doing is I just switched to a Bachelor of Arts, which is like a liberal arts degree and I did Italian and English literature and I threw law in there too because um, everyone was always like, well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, what are you going to do with your degree? And I didn't have an answer. Um, so um, if I took law as a subject, then I could be like, yeah, well, eventually I'm going to do a law degree and then I'll be a lawyer um, and then I'll put all this literature stuff to the side <laughs> and I'll be a responsible human. Um, and then what happened was I was studying law. So I did the Bachelor of Arts degree and then um, was doing a law degree afterwards. And um, it was at that time I kind of realized how, how important writing and reading was to me and in particular reading and writing fiction because I had no time suddenly to do that. I had to read um, so many cases and articles and just, you know, textbooks and reams and reams of legal material. And I just didn't have time to read poetry or fiction anymore. And I didn't have time to write anymore. And I felt empty. I really felt like I was in the wrong place. I was going down the wrong path. Um, so I, yeah, around that time, I did finish my degree, but I never went to work as a lawyer. I just decided I wanted to write books. And um, I kind of got funding to do a scholarship after that so to just give me time to write. And um, I did kind of copywriting and like kind of part time work and all sorts of cobbled together other kinds of work so that I could have time to write. Because I knew that if I had a day job as a write as a lawyer, if I'd gone to work in a, a you know, at a law firm, that I wouldn't have had time to write. Um, like working at a law firm is pretty much, you know, I don't know, 24 seven, it, it's not the kind of job that you can kind of leave at the office. So, so yeah, that's the choice that I made. And that's kind of when I started trying to write books and trying to figure out how to write stories with beginnings, middles and ends, instead of just writing beginnings and then abandoning them because I didn't know how to continue. I was just thinking that if I had a lawyer that sat down and said, hey, man, I listened to the show. I always wanted to be a writer, too. I'd say, no, I'd like to get another lawyer. You have a nice day. <laughs> Somebody that's very focused on the law to handle my case. <laughs> but did you find that all of that reading of things that you weren't interested in and pouring through things, did that help develop a skill that you could use for reading and, and, and writing the stuff that you did love? Or was it just non-transferable? It was interesting. I mean, I, I'm also, I'm the kind of person, this has also kind of been a gift and a bit of a curse, um, is that I'm the kind of person who just likes learning about pretty much anything. Um, 
and when I when I talk to people who are like, oh, I started doing this degree, and then I did that degree, and then I did this degree, I'm always like, you might be a writer, because that's how writers are. We like to read about all sorts of different things, and then cobble them together and put them into stories. And so I didn't know that then, but I was interested in law more just because I was interested in learning and reading um, than like actually practicing law. There's a big difference between reading legal cases and, and talking about the law and talking about things like um, you know, human rights and international law, like really interesting, fascinating topics versus actually working as a lawyer in an office. Um, and I got a, a little taste of that because I did some work um, over one of the holidays where I had to kind of intern at a law firm. And um, I had a, you know, I had a nice experience there, but I just knew that there was a difference between what I actually got out of it versus how, how that thing actually functions in the real world. Makes sense. So okay, so you decide. All right, law. We had a we had a nice attempt, but that's not going to be for me. It's got to be the fiction. Uh, how do you go from that that point then to your debut novel in twenty eighteen? The 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 turnaround turnaround girls. Turnaway girls. Yeah. Turnaways. Um. How did I go from there? So that was it, from the from the time that I made that choice until the book coming out was seven years. Um, and so it was seven years of basically teaching myself how to write a book um, and how to write a story that had um, that had a structure to it. So I read loads and loads of books about how to write a book, and I also just started writing. So at that point also, part of the reason why I made this course, um, 100 Ideas in 10 Days, is that when I started writing, I was like, I really desperately want to write a book, but I have no idea what to write about. I had no no sense of like my own um, like point of view or my own I don't know like what I wanted to say. What was I don't know what was like interesting to me. What was and what what was inside me that I actually wanted to kind of bring out. Um, so. I just what I did was I just started writing and I wrote lots of really boring stuff and I actually thought that I wanted to write books for adults because that's what I've been reading um, and I yeah I kind of thought that I wanted to write literary fiction um, but I like I said I had no no ideas basically so I would just take a character and just write about them and very often the manuscript the story would be like someone sitting in a room thinking about their life like reminiscing about their life which is not very fun to read about very exciting to read about um and I would get bored with myself I was like oh this is terrible okay throw it out start again <laughs> so I just wrote um I think I just had like such a at that point I just decided to do it and I had I had such determination to do it and I just was not going to give up until I figured out what it was that, um, you know, what kind of story I was here to write and how to, to execute that. So I wrote a couple of manuscripts for, for adults um, and then found myself, again, like that, that kind of trail of breadcrumbs. I noticed that children kept showing up in my stories. I kept having these young characters. And so I was like, okay, maybe I should write a book for children. And I started reading lots of recently published middle grade and YA books. And then I wrote a couple of kind of um, books about kids and they all had like magical elements. So, so I started noticing, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, there's like, there's lots of magic going on. Like sometimes it was the real world with some kind of um, uh, magical elements thrown in. Sometimes it was a, seemed like a completely, um, completely invented kind of second world fantasy. And so I started reading more and more fantasy too. 
And that's how I came to write The Tonaway Girls. Um, and yeah, so, but, but it wasn't the first book that I queried. The first book I queried was actually a novel in verse because I read this book called The Weight of Water by Sarah Crossan. It's this beautiful, beautiful book, um, a middle grade book. And every chapter is one poem or every scene rather is one poem. And so it's all written in verse. And I thought, well, I can do that. Like it's lower word count and I'm, I've always written poems and I love language. So let me try that. So I wrote this book in verse about an 11 year old girl whose voice is stolen by this old man who lives in an old age home, like near her house. And so she has to go and find it. And she ends up having it like interacting with this, with this man and figuring out why her voice has been stolen and how to get it back. Um, and I queried that book and I got a revise and resubmit on it and was really excited to do the revisions, did the revisions. And then it ended up not being like the revisions weren't what the agent kind of wanted for the book or expected. And um, yeah, and it ended up being uh, rejected. And yeah, so that was like quite disappointing, but also was such an amazing learning experience for me because I got to query. I figured out how to pitch my book. Um, I figured out how to revise and how not to revise, like how when you revise, you have to keep like the heart of the book there. If you revise the heart of the book away, it's just like a completely different book, which is actually still something that I kind of struggle with. I've got a follow up question, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold on to it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so I queried that book. And then after that rejection, um, I took a little bit of time to, to feel sad about it, but I, I had this other idea for the Turnaway Girls. And so that's when I started writing that book. And that's the book that I um, signed with my agent. Um, I queried that book and signed with my agent. Um, and then, yeah, that became my debut book. Of course, obviously, we're, we're going to spend some time talking about the Sisters of Straight Garden Place, which is available October 13th. So right after you're listening to this esteemed audience, or if you've come along later, good news. There's no, there's no queue. You can get straight to it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you mentioned you wanted to revise a book without revising the heart the heart out of the book. How do you know what mm. the heart of the book is and how do, how do you avoid uh, surgically removing it? Well, this is actually something that I, I, I struggle with to this day. Um, but I think that what I try to do now is before I revise is I write a list of, it's kind of like a heart list or like a list of all the things I love most in the book. Um, and I try to keep that in mind when I'm revising. And then I also, I guess the heart of the book would be like the thing at the center of it, like my, my agent has described it as like a crystal at the center of the story that if you had to remove it, it would be a completely different story. So you can change everything around that crystal. You can change how it, like how you structure the book or how, um, or like ornamental things about the world or sometimes even like atmosphere. But if that heart of the book changes, then it becomes a totally different thing. So it, it's quite, I don't know, it's, it's really it's something that's really hard to pin down. But I do try to think about that beforehand because so what I did with this revise and resubmit is I actually ended up write, rewriting the book in prose, which is like, hello, that takes out a huge, that changes the book completely um, going from verse to prose. Um, and then added in a whole bunch of other characters, added in just, it was just too much added to it. Um, and I think, I think that maybe was the thing that was really, that was kind of problematic about that revision was that it just got too far away from its original form and what, what the agent originally loved about it. Um, 
But if you're doing it for your own work, then yeah, making a list of the things that you think are really at the center of the book and that you love the most. And let's say like for Stray Garden, it's a book about sisters. So if I suddenly had to be like, oh, well, actually, no, it's just going to be one girl in a house on her own. Like that would change everything about that story. You couldn't tell the same story um, without the sisterhood aspect. Um, I don't know if that's explaining it properly. It is something that I still struggle with, to be honest. Oh, is there maybe a famous book you could think of where we could remove the heart, where we can easily identify what, what the heart of it is? It's just like asking you an essay question on a test yeah. and you haven't prepared for it ahead of time. It might be cruel. <laughs> um, well, okay, let me think. Let me think. Um, okay, let's take Because of Win dixie because everyone knows that book by Kate Camillo. I love that book. Um, so I think if you had to take out... Um, like, if you had to make that book about a girl who finds who finds a dog um, in a shop and is, like, having to interact with people, like, if you had to change her relationships with the, with the other people in the town where she lives um, and make them, like, overwhelmingly negative, um, or if you had to change, like, the ending of that book, or even take the dog out, let's say, and say it's a parrot, or um, I don't know, or make it so that like her parents are, like she, she hasn't lost her mother, like she has both of her parents. That would change the story in a really big way. Um, but if you had to have like a similar kind of, if you had to take that story and change the setting slightly, or um, change how the characters interact, or change how you get from one scene to another, then that's more of a change that can still keep the heart of the book intact. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm 100% on board with you. That <laughs> makes sense. Cool. So, and you mentioned your, your agent. That's Patricia Nelson, right? Yes. When, uh, when did she come into the picture? So um, midway through 2015, um, well, in the beginning of 2015, I started querying Oh, no, was it was at the beginning. Let me just try and think. I started writing the Tonaway Girls at the end of 2014. And then I started querying in April of 2015. And then signed with Patricia in June, I think. And what happened is that she actually read the book and then gave me a revise and resubmit or asked me if I wanted to revise and resubmit. And I said that I would. And she sent me like a list of books to read about um, story structure. Um, including uh, Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, which continues to be my favorite book about story structure, even though it's about screenwriting, not novel writing. Um, and yeah, and so I was doing that revise and resubmit for her. The book had also, I'd also queried a handful of other agents. And then what happened was while I was doing the R&R, &R, um, I got an offer from one of the other agents. Um, and so but I, I always, I had this feeling because of the interaction I'd had with Patricia that I wanted to sign with her and that we would make a good team um, because of the notes that she'd given me and because of how we'd interacted. I just immediately felt comfortable with her. And I just had this kind of gut feeling like this intuition that she and I would make a good team. So I, I let her know that I had an offer and she said to me, well, just send me the foot, like what you've revised so far. Um, and I, I think by that stage, I'd rewritten the entire uh, manuscript and I was like polishing it. Um, so I sent her the first three chapters, I think that were kind of readable. Um, and she offered on that a version of the manuscript. And so that's how we started working together. And it's funny because we still work like that together. I send her 
um, pitches for books and she weighs in on kind of which book I should focus on. And I sent her drafts and she sent, she always sends me the most insightful notes. Um, so we work together really, really well. And the, like the gut feeling that I had back then has proven to be accurate. Good. I love yeah. it when that works out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, and I should shamelessly remind esteemed audience that Patricia Nelson was good enough to face the seven questions available now at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, Ms. Nelson, if you're listening, I would absolutely love to have you on the show sometime. Uh, did you, you mentioned that you, you had a sense of her. So had you met her before and you officially queried her or did you write, pick her name out of a writer's market? No, I hadn't met her. What happened was I actually entered a pitch uh, competition on Twitter and she, it was one of these things where you had to kind of submit your pitch and then like the first 500 words or something like that. And then it was like kind of a blog hopping situation. So they would put the, the authors who arranged the competition, they would put the pitches and a little excerpt on um, their blog. And then um, agents would comment if they wanted to see more of any of the books that were there. Um, and so Patricia had commented on my pitch, um, which is why I sent her the the manuscript. So fate intervened because I actually hadn't queried her. Like I hadn't thought to query her. I don't know why. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she just hadn't come up in my research yet. Um, but yeah, so I so I sent her the manuscript and um, she read it and, and loved it, but wanted me to do some changes. And that's how our relationship started. And obviously, when you offer when an agent offers an R and R, they kind of send you an edit letter in a way. They they send you like notes and um, you know, Patricia's amazing because she doesn't tell me, she doesn't ever tell me like, this is how you should fix this. She's more saying there's a problem here or like she can really see the bird's eye view of my book and she can point out like the pacing is lagging here or um, this isn't quite working, but she never says you should, you know, fix it like this. And so she gave me these kind of broad notes and um, yeah, from her edit letter, I could just tell that she really understood my book. Um, she really understood my writing and she was the kind of person who could help me um, to write better and to write the books that I that I really wanted to write. So, yeah, it's worked out really well. And then, of course, she went on to get you the uh, first deal. And now uh, she's she's kept you for your second book. And I'm assuming many more yet to follow. We hope so. Yes. <laughs> so without uh, further delay, because I've got more questions for you about being a writing coach. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about flying saucers because we always do on this show all kinds of fun stuff. But before we get too far into this thing, I should mention that you have a book coming out again, The Sisters of Stray Garden Place, October 13th. So, uh, man of my word, I won't do your I won't I won't summarize your biography and I won't summarize your book because I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll malign it terribly. Uh, please tell us about the Sisters of Stray Garden, please. Cool. Okay, so the Sisters of Stray Garden Place is a dark middle grade fantasy um, about three sisters who live in a magical house. It's a magical mansion, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it takes care of them. It makes them food, and it tucks them into bed at night, and it provides them with clothing and anything they might need. But what's happened is that their parents have left them there, kind of abandoned them to the care of this house. And their parents have said to them, don't leave the house, just wait till we get back. But that was seven years ago. And the other thing you have to know about the house is that it's surrounded by this really tall silver grass. And so the parents have also said, don't leave the house, don't go walking in the grass, we'll come back. 
And what happens is the elder sister, Winnow, goes out into the grass and she returns and she seems okay. But very quickly after that, she starts to get sick. And so the middle sister, Mayhap, has to figure out why she's getting sick, why she left in the first place. And as she's trying to figure that out, she figures out things about, well, she discovers things about the house and things about her parents and things about herself that change everything that she kind of thought she knew about her life. It's the uh, perfect story to be read yeah, during quarantine uh, for COVID-19. <laughs> you yeah, can't go outside if you do. It's a quarantine like it's... book. <laughs> Um, and then uh, I wanted to ask, um, um, well, when you're uh, when you're writing a book like this, where you've got a mystery, especially knowing that you're, I'm assuming, pantsed it originally and then and then rewrote it until everything was was consistent. When you're dealing with uh, one, I mean, did you know uh, the mystery of where, the, without spoiling, where the parents have been off to when you started, or did you find it out along with the characters? No, I didn't. I didn't know anything. Well, okay, so it's how it started was um, I had this image in my mind of these sisters sleeping in a bed. They were all sleeping in, in one bed together. And um, and I wanted to write about them. I thought they were, they were interesting. I wanted to figure out, yeah, who they were and what story they belonged in. It was a really compelling image to me. And I kind of knew that they loved each other deeply, but they also had like really a really complicated dynamic. And so I started writing about them. And in the beginning, they were in a completely different story. Because um, uh, I just kind of started throwing ideas at them, like, oh, maybe they're in this kind of a situation. And maybe it's very snowy. Or maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And I just started writing. Um, and it took me a number of drafts. I don't know how many, because I, I, I don't really keep track. But it took me a number of drafts to figure out that they, the, the situation that they were in, in the sense that their parents had abandoned them into this house. And then as I was writing, then the silver grass kind of came up. And then, yeah, it it, it happened um, on one day. And I remember it actually quite vividly. Um, I write really, really early in the morning sometimes when I'm trying to, um, trying to draft and trying to figure something out. Um, and I wrote the scene where I figured out why they were in the house and like, what was actually going on and it was it's such it's always such an amazing feeling to figure it out it's like this I don't know like it's it's like the universe is speaking to you or like some some kind of like being from outer space is speaking to you it always feels really like it just gives me this feeling of elation and and um like it's like things clicking together um but yeah so I figured that out and then it was a matter of going back and planting all the clues and making sure that like the beginning of the book you know, hinted at the at the final mystery at the end or the reveal at the end. Makes uh, might 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 not make sense to non-writers, but let's let's be honest. Why are non-writers listening to this wonderful writer show for <laughs> writers? Um, but that I I know a hundred percent what you mean. That moment when the universe opens up, it's almost like seeing God. Like, oh, there you are. I've been yes. dealing with all this atheist reality over here, where there was no nothing magical, and there there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, the other thing I have to say is that this book has creatures in it called drumhunts, and they are little black dogs. Um, because the the sister, the other thing I didn't say about the sisters is that they're cursed with insomnia. So every time they close their eyes, they get this like really painful white kind of noise in their head. Um, 
And so these little dogs, they're called drum hunts, and they sleep inside, the, they climb into their minds and, and sleep there so that they can close their eyes and have the, the feeling of being asleep, if even actually asleep. Um, so, and the reason why that happened, well, that just happened spontaneously in a draft. There were these little dogs. Um, I really liked them. I thought they were cool. And I realized, oh, they're sleeping inside their heads. There's this insomnia aspect. And then when I was trying to figure out the plot of the book, one of the things I did was I was like, okay, so there's this magic where they have these creatures who are sleeping in their minds. And I thought to myself, what could go wrong with this? Like, what could go wrong with this magical house and these creatures and the, these sisters? And sometimes that's a really interesting way into a story. If you have a magic system, to, is to ask, like, what, what could go wrong? What, what if this magic system went bad? Like, what's the, what's the dark side of it? Um, so that was another thing that helped me figure out the plot. But it really was like just draft after draft of being in the scenes with these characters and watching things unfold in a way. It's like watching yourself dream and going, oh, OK, yeah, I want to keep that. I want to keep that. I don't want to keep that. Um, and then asking lots of questions about what's going on in the story. So this isn't a, a conscious metaphor for anything and where you said, well, this is this is my, the thematic significance of, of, of this. Um, this is just, it's coming to you and even scarier for me because I find that that's going to reveal a bigger piece if you don't have a conscious plan because that, that, that subconscious is going to come up and bring up whatever's going on in your life, right? I assume. That's true. Yeah, that is very true. I've never thought about it that way. Um, but I also think that there's a kind of safety in writing fiction because, yeah, even though it's very personal and it's very much about your life and what's going on in your mind and in your heart and what you've experienced, it's also about other people. So you can you can always be like, that's not me. That's, you know, that's this character. Um, but yeah, of course, even writing magical books. Um, yeah, there's a there's a like an autobiography to it or an element of uh like it's, it's personal it's yeah it's it's not filtered do you uh are you an only child or do you have siblings i have siblings i have three sisters oh how does that work out yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i'm kind of the i'm not really a middle sibling because there are four of us but i am the second eldest so in a way, I'm kind of the middle child because my little, my younger sisters are very close in age. So it's kind of like the elder sister and then me and then the two. We used to call them the babies for the longest time. The babies. We can't call them that anymore because they're nearly 30. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so you thought cleverly uh, making four sisters into three would throw everyone off the, the trail. Like, nope. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then with uh, with 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 magical uh, a magical system in place like this, do you? I mean, at some point you've got to you've got to clamp down and say these are the rules of my universe. When does that happen? Do you just let everything everything fly where it may? Draft one and then fix it. Draft two, or when do you when do you create your rules? Yeah, um, it's quite late on in the process because I like to keep everything quite free when I'm figuring out what I what what the story is about and what kind of. Um, what I really like, like I, I really tend to just add things in that I find fun and beautiful. Um, but yeah, it does get to a point where you have to go, okay, so these creatures are sleeping in their minds. How does that actually work? Um, you know, can they, can they just enter their minds at any point or is it this, um, or do, is there like, 
choice involved or is it at this particular time and where did they come from and you know all of that stuff um and so it's it's kind of an ongoing process like i said i'm quite disorganized there isn't a ma- i don't go like i'm going to draft and have all this mess and then i'm going to make everything neat it's it's more like make a mess and then neaten it up a bit and then make a mess again and then neaten it up a bit um so yeah it's it's kind of ongoing where i'm thinking about kind of how to yeah how the rules work or how um yeah how things kind of fit into the world and timelines and you know all the like the nitty-gritty of like well she said this at this point so she kind of said that at that point um and then even sometimes in copy edits you know my copy editor or my editor will be like well you said this on page five and this on page 15 and then i have to make a choice but i sometimes i leave the choice to quite late um maybe just because i don't like making choices i don't know (laughs) Yes, you yell at the copy editor because you can't yell at yourself or not. That's the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm always uh, grateful and furious when somebody finds, uh, finds a crucial thing. Like, I'm, I'm always glad, hey, I'm glad you found it before this thing is out there. Let's make sure it's straight. But also, dang it, I was feeling so good about myself. And now <laughs> I, have to, I have to admit that I've made this mistake. Yeah, it always kind of stings, doesn't it? You're like, I thought I covered everything. I thought I thought I I figured this out. And then it fills you with dread because, oh my God, we're this late in the process, and and you found that. What else is there? Look, yeah. Oh, search. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, something else I, I noticed about this book is you've got very uh, intricate prose. I'm, I'm, uh, you don't need me to tell you this. I, I know that uh, you've been praised uh, pretty roundly uh, for your prose uh, because you've written such beautiful lyrical sentences and you've really taken the time to, to look at the world and, and write descriptions that I don't think I've quite read exactly this way elsewhere. Um, uh, how much time are you spending on your on your prose and when in the process are you doing that? Is that like draft five, draft 20 type stuff? Or? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I think that I kind of let the prose lead me pretty much from the beginning. Um, so when I'm having a bad day, it's usually when the prose isn't working um, in terms of not in terms of everything being really neat, but in terms of like there being magic or spark or rhythm in the prose that I can follow. Um, so I think it's actually a thing that I think about throughout um, when I'm drafting. Um, and then, of course, in revisions and line edits, um, I'll be kind of going over every sentence, making sure that it, it sounds right, like it has to have the right sound to the ear. And I think that maybe that's connected to having a musical background is that like words, like I wrote songs for you know, basically my whole childhood and my whole adolescence into my 20s. So language and music are always kind of like together for me. And so when I, obviously when you're writing prose, you don't want it to be too like, you know, like too musical. Um, But you, it needs to sound, it needs to sound good. And yeah, and I I can hear if it sounds good or if it sounds, I don't know, off or, or bad. So um, so that's in line edits. I usually do, you know, I, I read over every sentence like obsessively out loud. And I also read back, like I'll read the book from the end to the beginning, not the sentence backwards, but the like from the last chapter to the first chapter, um, just to see if I can catch anything that isn't working. Um, but yeah, like language is so important to me. It's so, um, it's so, 
fascinating to me and so beautiful to me. And I always want to play with language and just like, that's like the joy of writing to me is to start a sentence and just see where it, where it leads and where it can go. Um, so yeah, it's pretty much constant. I'm constantly thinking about the language. And then does anybody uh, give you feedback on the book before, I assume it goes off to Patricia Nelson at some point, but before that, do you have uh, critique partners, anybody else that steps in and gives you that feedback? I do have critique partners. Yeah, I have um, I have a handful of really lovely critique partners. And even it's even nice just to have when you're drafting to have kind of cheerleaders. Um, I don't always have like very, I think my group of critique partners, I don't know if this is like, like the same for everyone, but we're very, we're very encouraging of each other's work. And so sometimes it will be a case of like, oh, I just don't know if this book is working or it just feels like flat or boring to me. Um, and then we'll kind of send extracts back and forth and just like tell each other like, no, this is really good. You need to keep going or like this isn't quite working or the beginning's a bit slow. Or, but it's very broad. It's usually very broad feedback, um, not really like line edit level or sentence level feedback. Gotcha. So that, that gets saved for... Patricia, and then eventually uh, your editor. Yeah. Do we want to shout out your editor? Yeah, my editor is Miriam Newman at Candlewick Press, and she's amazing. And also welcome on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's my my laziest question, but it's also one of my favorites, um, because I always try to do this show. If I were on uh, somebody's show, how would I want that interview to go? and I would want someone to leave open a spot for me to, to, to say whatever I would I, I want esteemed audience to know about the book. So my lazy question is, what is a question no one has asked you about this book, but that you'd love to answer it? And once you've identified the question, please answer it. Hmm. What is a question that no one's asked me? I'm really lucky, actually, because I've gotten lots of really fascinating questions about it. Um, But I guess maybe I haven't spoken extensively about how much music is such a huge part of my process. So when I write a book, I usually choose one song. I didn't actually do this consciously, but I realized with the Tonaway Girls, I was listening to one song on repeat for months. Um, And so with Stray Garden, I, I found one song and I also just listened to it pretty much on repeat while I was drafting. Um, and then some other music. the song or is it too personal? No, it's okay. It's uh, Tori Amos. I think the song is called Mother. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. I'm a huge Tori Amos fan. Uh, uh, yes, Anastasia has been the, the, the theme song for a couple of my stories. Uh, you are speaking my love language. Yes, go on, Mother. Cool. Yeah, so I listened to that over and over and over. And like, I don't know if it's the lyrical content. It probably isn't. I don't know what it is. It's just something about the vibe the vibe of the song, the feeling of the song that is almost like a doorway that you can just, like sometimes music to me feels like that, like it's just this doorway into the story. If I'm struggling to get there or if I just feel like things are feeling flat or I can't access something, um, then I put on music and it feels like I'm there. It just, it's like a portal um, to the story. So yeah, and I also listened to the score for the first and the second season of The Crown. I don't know if you like that show. I'm obsessed with that show. Never seen the show, love the soundtrack. (laughs) Cool, yeah, the soundtrack is so good, exactly. So, and, and, and I love instrumental music for writing because it just has this, immediate sense of atmosphere and and that soundtrack or score rather it has this feeling of like foreboding and 
I don't know, it has like a sumptuous kind of feeling, which I really liked. So yeah, I, I use music a lot when I'm drafting, not so much when I'm revising, because then I feel like I need silence, especially when I'm reading things over and over. But if I'm just, if I want to fast draft a scene and I feel hesitant or, I don't know, or scared or a bit blocked, then music always helps me to get, to get going. We, uh, you made me nervous a little bit up front with your wild abandoned uh, <laughs> pantsing. But now we've come back when we're in the we're on the same page. Yes, listening to Tori Amos and feeling the story, I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah. Because uh, you're the first person to bring up Tori Amos on the show, and she's been just a huge part of my life uh, since adolescence. I, I discovered her and have been listening to her since. I find that uh, one thing I like about her is how ambiguous so many of the lyrics to her songs are. And I've learned not to ever listen to interviews with her because if she explains what a song of hers is actually about, it gets in my way. Like, no, don't tell me the actual thing the song's about. I've already invented a thing that I think is is is, is much better for your song, frankly. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, well, I, I often tell writers to use songs as like an idea. If you don't have a book idea, start with the song lyric. Um, obviously, you're not going to keep the song lyric in there, like as you revise, but start with something and imagine, like, if the song were a story, what would it be about? Exactly what, like, what you're saying. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that with Tori Amos, I agree. I think she has like a very, um, there's something kind of otherworldly about her and about her music. It's just so, I don't know. There's something kind of magical about it, and and I agree. It's it's it almost feels like each each song is a story. But you you wouldn't know just from reading the lyrics what the story is. Like it could be a thousand different stories. Oh, when I found out the lyrics to Raspberry Swirl were kind of a dirty pun, I was like, oh, that makes it less fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't define your songs for me. Let me discover them. Um, I assume Tori Amos listens every week, so this will be extremely useful. To <laughs> I'm sure she's a huge fan. <laughs> uh, getting back to uh, uh, to what you tell writers, because you are a writing coach. So how does that work? What kind of services as a writing coach are you providing? Well, um, I'm quite new at, as, at being a writing coach, but um, what I do is I try to figure out um, usually I have a conversation with writers in the beginning where I talk about what they tell me kind of what's working for them and what isn't working for them. And and we try to kind of work on the stuff that isn't working, like how we can get it to work. So if that's like feeling a lot of resistance to, to working or procrastinating or if it's like I can't come up with ideas or I don't know how to write a, a whole book, like I don't know how to sustain a story over the course of a novel, uh, an entire novel. Um, or my characters are feeling flat, or whatever it is, um, then I kind of tailor it to what that particular writer is going through. And so what we do is I have um, a weekly session session with them, which is like a Zoom session, and we chat for an hour. Um, and then after that, I send them notes from our chat, and then also exercises for the following week. And then we check in the next week after they've done those the exercises that I set for them. And the exercises will be targeted based on what they're struggling with. Um, but yeah, I'm not the best writing coach for every writer, but I think for people who write intuitively and who are pantsers who feel anxious about pantsing, um, I'm, I'm a pretty good person to have in your corner because I know what it feels like to, to be anxious about pantsing. And I also have created a lot of strategies for myself to get going 
even when I feel stuck or I don't know what's going to happen next or I need to like come up with an idea. And like I said, in the beginning of my writing career, when I decided I wanted to be a novelist, I really felt like um, like I didn't know what to say. Um, and so I, I really love working with writers to help them to find their voices. Um, the thing with writing is that you, no one can tell you what to do. No one can tell you what your stories are or what your voice sounds like. You have to discover it for yourself. Um, so having a coach is kind of like just having a guide along that that journey so that you don't feel alone and you don't give up so that you can actually get there and get to a point where you you start to have more confidence and you start to kind of know yourself as a writer. So obviously that involves all kinds of um, personal uh, personalized things that could will we'll come up on, in an individual situation that we can't hope to touch on in a podcast. On the other hand, anytime I can get a little taste for free, I'm interested. <laughs> so let's say I come to you and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm not able uh, to write every day um, for whatever you, you, you come up with the reason why I can't write every day. And then tell me how we might address that specific problem. And we'll still leave plenty of secrets that people need to come and pay money for. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so I, what I would say is I would ask you, um, do you why why do you feel like you have to write every day? Because I want to be a professional famous author. Okay, yeah, because I mean, so the thing with writing is that there is this idea that you have to write every day, and certainly in the beginning, when you're forming the habit of writing, it really helps to say I'm going to check in every single day, even if it's just for ten minutes. So I would say if you're struggling to write every day, it's probably because you're setting a very high standard for yourself. You're probably thinking, I have to write 3,000 words every day, or I have to write for an hour or 45 minutes every day. And to make it lower stakes for you, I would say if you want to write every day, get a timer of some kind, like an egg timer, or use the timer on your phone, and tell yourself that every day at a particular time, um, usually first, well, like first thing in the morning if that works for you, usually first thing is much easier for people because it's like you get it off your to-do list first thing but set aside 10 minutes a day and put your timer on have some kind of prompt or something that you're going to start with so that you're not just staring at a blank page and just write for 10 minutes just 10 minutes and then once you've done that if you're feeling energized and you feel like you can continue and you want to do another 10 minutes or another 20 minutes then that's awesome but if you if you don't then you've done that 10 minutes and you can tick that off and you can feel a sense of like achievement and confidence and that you've you've given time to this thing that's really really important to you so yeah a couple of things help if you if you're struggling with that with that resistance timers doing things first thing in the morning when you have a lot of energy still or a lot of I mean it's the thing is it's it's particular to every person so if you're the kind of person who gets a lot of creative energy in the evening then of course do it in the evening but if you wake up and you do something first thing in the morning it's you're telling yourself this is important to me. I'm committing. I'm committed to this thing. If you do your writing after you've answered emails, watched YouTube, I don't know, done a whole bunch of other things, um, then often you feel really depleted by the time you get to the writing. So find a time that works for you and use a timer and just break it down into really, really tiny steps. If you only want to write 100, if, if you can only kind of write 50 words or 100 words a day, that adds up. You don't have to spend three hours writing in order to call it like a good writing day. But don't I have to tweet and update YouTube and <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and all those yeah. things that are going to assure that this is the post that will make me a famous author? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the most important thing about being an author, as you know, is writing your books. So um, 
if you don't have any books to promote, then, you know, then that's not going to be good. So you need to write the books. Um, and yeah, and like obviously social media is, it's wonderful to be able to, to connect with people on there and share things, but it also, you know, you compare yourself to other writers or you get, I don't know, like dread and anxiety and you see an article about something horrible, something horrible that's happened in a distant land and you feel terrible about it. And all of that stuff is taking away energy that you could use for your writing. So if something's a priority to you, definitely do it before Twitter, I would say. Unfortunately, I'm in the United States, so these days all the terrible things are happening right here. <laughs> That's true. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Hopefully that will change soon. Okay. <laughs> um, um, hey, the Chewins, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have never seen a flying saucer or a ghost, but my, my Oma, my grandmother on my mom's side has so many ghost stories. I feel like she's the, she's the person who could, she has like second sight or something. She has lots of ghost stories and she's seen a, a UFO, but I have never seen one. It's very sad. Well, you need to spend more time with her and <laughs> go where she goes when she's seeing the cool stuff. <laughs> Well, it all happened when I, before I was born, so she doesn't see ghosts anymore, I don't think. I should ask her if she's seen one recently. Ask her where she's seeing it. Go with her. That's, <laughs> I, haven't seen, I, haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen a flying saucer either. It's on my bucket list. Uh, so anytime I hear of somebody that's, that's seeing I'm pretty regular, okay, where are you going? I'm coming. <laughs> well, I have a friend who's seen one, and she's actually writing a middle grade book about these UFOs that come to earth and like all the people suddenly disappear except this one girl and her dog. And so you should have her on the podcast because she will talk to you about blind sources. Absolutely. Let's, let's make this happen. <laughs> cool. So, uh, you are, you are invited. <laughs> <You're listening. laughs> and I'll uh, gather, gather her information from you after that, that. That sounds like a very promising lead. That's how we get our best stories. <laughs> our best interviews. Um, well, I, watching our time and i know it's it's flying away i guess it always does we, we get to talking about writing and tori amos and all my favorite things and then oh my god what happened to our time um <laughs> so looking toward uh one event i wanted to ask you a bit about marketing and then i'll have one more question for you and we'll, we'll call it a day uh but you've got a, a newsletter you are on social media it's not everything that you're doing but you do have a, a very distinct presence um, and then, of course, you're facing the same challenge uh, as writers around the world right now in, in quarantine for pandemic while you're launching your book. So what are you doing to effectively market and keep yourself out there during this time? Well, I'm doing podcasts like this where I get to do the most fun thing ever, which is talk about writing and hopefully talk about my books in some way. Um, and yeah, social media. I do have a newsletter. Um, what else am I doing? Um, I'm planning to put together some giveaways for the next week, like the week. What is today? Today's the 4th of October. Yeah. So it's like nine, it's like nine days till the book comes out. So in the next couple, in the next week, I'm going to have a giveaway on Twitter. So people should look out for that. Um, I also do live library research, um, outreach in South Africa. So just with local librarians, um, I try to like, kind of um, go to all different schools and contact them and chat to them. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that in during the pandemic. Um, I try to do school visits also. I do school visits on Skype with schools all over the world. 
Um, so yeah, that's the stuff that I do. I'm not an, a marketing expert though. I'm much better at writing the books than marketing the books. Um, but yeah, I try to do my part because obviously when you write a book, you really want people to read it and you want to tell people about it. Um, and I guess the best way to do that is just to talk about how you're, how, how excited you are about it and just to tell people about it and what, I mean, what more can you do? I don't know, but when I find out, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, last question, thank you so much uh, for making the, the time. I know we, uh, we had to reschedule a few times. We've been looking forward to this since way back when. It has lived up to all my excitement uh, and more. This has been just a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being uh, such an excellent guest. But my uh, final question for uh, most everyone is usually some version or some variation of if you could go back uh, to the start of your writing career and give yourself one or two or however many pieces of advice you like that would have made your path going forward much easier. It might make the path of everyone listening uh, much easier. What would you go back and tell yourself? I would tell myself to write fantasy, to write magical books, because right in the beginning, I was writing really realistic stories. And um, even today, if I try, like I recently had a book idea and I was like, well, it would be interesting if I said this in the real world, and it could be like some magic, but also real world elements. And I kind of brainstormed it and I figured out like after a while, I just didn't feel excited about it. I just don't, I don't know why, but I'm not built to write about the real world. I love reading about it. And I think there are some writers who do it so, so well and who really translate like realistic experience, you know, human experience into prose. But I'm not one of those writers. And I kind of wish I'd known that earlier on because um, then I, I wouldn't have spent a couple of years trying to write realistic stories and not and not knowing like why I couldn't make it work. Um, uh, because as soon as I made the switch to writing more um, magical, speculative work, something really changed in my writing. Like I just got better ideas and I was able to push through and I was able to write inter more interesting stories. Um, and I was more excited about the stories. So, but I also had this thing. So I think it was because I had never really been a huge fantasy reader. Like growing up, obviously I read like Narnia and things like that, but I didn't read Tolkien until I was... 21 I think and it also felt like I guess I kind of felt like well I'm not going to write something like like Lord of the Rings um I wasn't plugged into like this fandom or like this culture of writing like second world fantasy so I had a lot of imposter syndrome about it I didn't know if I could do it and I kind of felt like is that really for me you know like can I actually do it so yeah I think I'll go back and just say don't worry about it just write magical stories write magical stories the way that you write them and it'll be okay. And that's what I always say to writers is write the stuff that makes you excited, write the stuff that you love, write the stuff that you that fascinates you and you'll be okay. That's the perfect note to end on. I also <laughs> think we got a little bit more free writing coach. So yes, like <laughs> that in there before the end. Uh, where can esteemed audience find you online, get more information about you, your books, all that good stuff? Yeah, so I'm at HaleyChewins.com, and on Twitter, I'm Haley underscore Chewins. Um, I don't have Instagram, and um, yeah, you can join my newsletter if you want to. It's on my website um, if you want to get regular updates from me. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I am. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. This has been amazing. Um, I've loved our conversation. It's been so, so fun. 
well, when you get your next book, come back and tell me what Tori Amos song you were listening to while you wrote it. Well, <laughs> tell me a and I'll listen to it while I read it, and we'll <laughs> we'll both have that. I'll experience. do that. <laughs> uh, as always, esteemed audience, uh, for interviews with hundreds of literary agents, authors, publishing professionals, head to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Listen to Under the Pink by Tori Amos. And God willing that I'm alive, I'll see you next week. Thank you.